Open up to Daniel chapter 6. Would you bow with me? Father, how glad we are, excited we are to be here this morning after this long, hot summer, and now to continue our look into your word to learn more about you. It is so great to be studying this book of Daniel and to be reminded over and over again as we go through it of the fact that even in the midst of a world of serious turmoil and chaos, you reign. You rule in both the heavens above and on this earth beneath. And there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that takes you by surprise. That is so comforting. Thank you that as we gather, we are encouraged by one another in our walk with you, and that we have the privilege and the freedom to worship you in this country. We can worship you in spirit and in truth by studying your word. And we do ask that as we open the scriptures, you would renew our minds so that our thoughts are put into alignment with your thoughts and our ways would become your ways. We ask, Father, that the Spirit would be our teacher this morning to open the truths that he inspired Daniel to record. May he illuminate those truths to our hearts and minds as only he can do. Help me, Father. Fill me with your grace and mercy. Help me to have a clear mind and fast lips so that we can get everything in. And we do ask that together, in my words and all of our thoughts, corporately, we would give glory to the only one who deserves glory. And that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, I hope your cell phones are off. Got to get used to that again, don't we? And um, that you can see the outline up on the board. There are, of course, very few chapters in the book of Daniel that are more familiar to students of the Bible, and I would say even to people who aren't students of the Bible, than the six chapters account of Daniel's miraculous preservation in what? The lion's den. Although he lived a very long life, Daniel lived to be in his early 90s, as far as we know. Yet his one night spent in the ravenous lion's lair, L-A-I-R. I'm going to do a play on words with that in our title, so I want you to know that a lair is like a den. But that one night he spent in that lair, which was maliciously prepared for him, by his adversary and our adversary, the devil, who really is the true roaring lion in this event. That one night that the devil prepared for him in order to literally devour him. You know, he's a roaring lion seeking to devour us, right? To destroy us, our testimony, but literally he was going to have Daniel devoured. But that one night was the apex of his, Daniel's extraordinary spiritual example of self-sacrificing, uncompromising faithfulness to his God. Remember one word that describes Daniel? Uncompromising or faithful, steadfast. A lot of words actually describe him. But no matter how many times, and I know probably if you grew up in a church, you have probably heard the account of Daniel in the lion's den since you can remember as a preschooler, right? But no matter how many times we open up this chapter and look at it, guess what? I got news for you. 
we're always going to find something new. Some new applications to our lives, maybe that you never saw before. I think you're going to learn some new truths that maybe you never thought about before. For example, how many lions were actually in the lion's den? Anybody want to guess? You know what? We usually think of maybe three, four, five, right? Because of the picture books we look at with the kids. A whole lot more than that. But you'll have to wait till we get there to find out. But there were a lot of lions in there. Uh, but we're going to find out, some, uh, reach some new depths, some, see some intriguing new insights and life-changing, I hope, applications as we look at this very, very familiar Story. At least I trust that is going to be the case for each and every one of us. Well, as chapter 6 opens, the Babylonian Empire. Now, all last year, Daniel was in the midst of the Babylonian Empire. Now, that empire, which was represented, remember, the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, God-given dream in chapter 2, which was of a big statue, And the Babylonian Empire and Nebuchadnezzar was represented by what? The head of the head of gold. Well, that head of gold from that dream, God-given dream, had been conquered and replaced, just as the prophecy dream had predicted, by the silver arms and the breastplate that represented the Medo-Persians and their empire. That has transpired. You know, prophecy has been fulfilled. I think it's interesting that Daniel lived long enough to see the first fulfillment of that prophecy that God had given to Nebuchadnezzar, and he had translated that dream. I mean, he had interpreted it. And we, you and I, live on the other end of that statue, don't we? We live down at the time of the feet and toes, just about, you know. We're really in the ankle bracelet, if you don't know what I'm talking about you know, get the tapes from last year, but we're down at the other end. Daniel was at the top. Well, historians tell us that that transition from the head of gold to the breast and arms of silver, from Babylon to Medo-Persia, that transition occurred on one night, and it was October 12th, 539 BC, before Christ. That was the night that Belshazzar, who was the arrogant grandson of King Nebuchadnezzar, hosted a decadent feast that he invited all his lords and quote-unquote ladies to. It really turned out to be a giant orgy, drunken feast, you know. Anyway, in that feast, he dared to challenge Almighty God. Big mistake, big mistake. And in his drunkenness, he called for the vessels of God that his grandfather had long before taken from the temple in Jerusalem when he carried the captives over, you know, from Judah to Babylon. He had taken with him the holy vessels out of the temple. Belshazzar called for those to be brought forth so that he and all his guests could drink from them to toast their pagan gods. And that food, that was was in-your-face God, wasn't it? An in-your-face God challenge. Look what I'm going to do with your holy vessels. What kind of God are you? You can't even prevent me from doing that. Well, as I said, that was a mistake, and that foolish challenge was abruptly silenced. Everybody, every drunken person in that room, all of a sudden their jaws, I think they were instantly sobered when what happened? Finger, fingers, not even a hand, but fingers, God's fingers, wrote a serious message of imminent 
doom for not only Belshazzar, but for the whole Babylonian kingdom. And he wrote it, we think, on the plaster wall right above where Belshazzar was sitting in his throne. And what were those words? Many, many, takele you farson. And, of course, nobody knew what that meant, so the long-forgotten Daniel was remembered by the queen, the queen mother, and he was brought in, he was summoned for help to interpret the words, the strange words that were written on that wall. Now, because of his previous interpretation of the chapter 2 dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had, and also because of the fact that by the time of chapter 5, Daniel himself, this is out of sequence, but Daniel himself had already received his own God-given visions that we're going to talk about in chapters 7 and 8. And also, he was a student of the scripture, and he had been studying a lot of the writings of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and he had this whole thing kind of basically pieced together. So by the time he walked into that banquet hall and saw those words written on the wall above the king's head, the minute he saw them, he understood exactly what they meant. Belshazzar had been measured on God's holy scales of justice and found seriously wanting, right? We all fall far short of the glory of God. And he was judged. The mighty Babylonian empire was to be replaced by the duo forces, was a joint army of the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel takes us now into the setting of a new Gentile empire, which is that of the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus the Persian is the emperor of this whole empire, okay? He's the big, like the Caesar, okay, over the whole thing. Cyrus is the emperor, and he appoints a man by the name of Darius the Mede to be the vassal king of Babylon, which has now become a city of the Medo-Persian Empire. So we have a new, the setting is a new empire. The setting is a new king. It's no longer Belshazzar. He's dead. Um, It's Darius the Mede. But the city is the same. So we're still going to be in that architecturally magnificent city of Babylon. All right, our lesson is entitled Persecution by ravenous liars. And here's my play on words. Next week, our lesson is going to be called Preservation in a Ravenous Lair. <laughs> so one is liar, the other is lair. And today's outline, five parts. We're going to look at the person of Darius. There's been a lot of debate about who this man was. We're going to talk about that. Then we're going to look at the promotion of Daniel, the persecution of Daniel, the prayer life of Daniel, and finally, very quickly, the problematic decree. So let's begin by talking about the person of Darius, the Mede. What do we learn from, first of all, the most important, what do we learn from Scripture about this man? Darius the Mede. Well, we learn that he was 62 years old when he conquered Babylon. That is in chapter 5, verse 31. We're told his age, 62. 
We also learn from chapter 9, verse 1, that he was made king of Babylon, which means that somebody else put him in that office, made him the king. That's important because a lot of people say that Cyrus was actually Darius the Mede, but no one made Cyrus the king. He was the king by inheritance. So Darius the Mede is a separate person, separate person from Cyrus. Who put Darius the Mede as king over Babylon? Cyrus, who was the emperor. All right, we also learn, and we're going to talk about this in verses two and, uh, 1 and 2 of this chapter. He installed, as soon as he got into his office, first thing he did was he installed three presidents to govern under him and 120 princes, or satraps. They administered in the affairs of Babylonia right after he became king. We also learn, and this is also in chapter 9, verse 1, that his father's name was Ahasuerus. Not the same Ahasuerus that you think of with Esther, different one. Um, and we are told he was of the seed of the Mede. So he was not a Persian. He was a, a Mede, Mede from the Median Empire. The first year of his reign over the king of, as king of the Chaldeans is mentioned twice. The first year of his reign is mentioned two times in the book of Daniel. But then there are no other mentions of his reign at all. Like it never says the second year of the reign of Darius the Mede, or the third year, just the first year. And that's interesting. We'll talk about that. And he was succeeded on the throne by Cyrus the Persian. Okay, after Darius, Cyrus then became not only lord of all the lands of the Medes and Persians, but he became also called the king of Babylon. Well, as discussed last year, there are many, many critics, liberal critics of the book of Daniel, who say that the book is full of mistakes. Right away when I became a brand new Christian, the uh, minister of the church I was attending handed me a book, and guess what it was all about? And he was a professor at the uh, Duke University in the religion department. And he handed me a book to read about all the errors in Daniel. Not a good thing to do with a brand new Christian. <laughs> but I, I um, started investigating way back then. That was 30 years ago. Um, when I first taught the first book I ever taught in this Bible study was Daniel. So we've made full circle, right? So my son-in-law said, well, maybe this is a year you'll croak since you came full circle. <laughs> Only a son-in-law would say that, right? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, there are a lot of critics out there who say that Daniel is, um, you know, full of mistakes. And among many of the things that they point out, and last year, every time we came across one of those things they point out, we addressed that, didn't we? We gave it a counterpunch and so told how they were wrong. And there are, there are explanations for everything they point out. But one of the things they say is that a true Daniel, one who actually lived uh, in the 6th century B.C., that a true Daniel would have known that, number one, there was no such Babylonian king named Belshazzar. He was a fictitious character. There was never a Belshazzar because they couldn't find any historical records that ever had his name. And it shouldn't have been Belshazzar in the banquet hall that night. It should have been Nabonidus. 
his name is found. And he, of course, was the stepfather of Belshazzar, and he didn't really want to be king. Remember him? He, he um, was an absent king, but they co-reigned together. Anyway, that's one of the things. No such guy as Belshazzar. Another thing they say is that if it really was a true Daniel living six or 500 years before Christ, he would have known that the first king to reign over Babylon in the Medo-Persian control of that city was Cyrus and not some man called Darius the Mede. In fact, they say there was no historical figure named Darius the Mede, the son of Hasuerus, who served as king of Babylon. And even if there was such a man, they say, there was not enough time between Babylon's fall, October 2nd, 539 B.C., and the reign of Cyrus as king over Babylon. Well, of course, the underlying reason for their unrelenting criticism of Daniel is very obvious. These scholars, and they call them higher critics. I don't know why the term higher. I guess they think they're higher than the rest of us. I would call them the lower critics. But these higher critics, these scholars, the critics of scripture, not just the book of Daniel, but of course all scripture, they look at their worldview of humanistic rationalism. In other words, if you can't rationalize it in your human mind, then it just can't be, right? And so uh, they cannot tolerate two things. They cannot tolerate supernatural revelation, that there would be a God out there who could predict the future ahead of time, that he knows the end from the beginning. So they reject supernatural revelation. And what's the second thing they reject? The miraculous. And Daniel, guess what, is full of both. So they really attack Daniel. What's really funny, however, (laughs) to me, is that as much as the critics attempt to use archaeology, the study of archaeology, to disprove scripture, it never works out that way for them. Never works. Because true, objective archaeology Not those archaeologists that take what they find and they misinterpret it purposely or lie about it, but true objective archaeology is always, 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 and it always will be the friend of the word of God. Remember that. That ark is out there, (laughs) not just Ken Ham's ark. (laughs) The real ark is out there, and one day in God's timing, they're going to find it. But archaeology is always a friend of the word of God. So much to the dismay of the scholars, these higher critics, there, are a number of, there were a number of significant archaeological discoveries in the 19th and 20th centuries that mentioned Belshazzar by name and also shed a whole lot of light on the identity of Darius the Mede, who was the Lion King. You know that? <laughs> not, not the... Uh, Fire king was Nebuchadnezzar. The banquet king was Belshazzar. Who is the real lion king? Not Disney's. Darius the Mede. Darius was likely a throne name, um, a royal title, because it means holder of the scepter. So it's just a title. It wasn't unusual for ancient kings to have more than one name. A lot of the Egyptian pharaohs had as many as five different names, which makes it really difficult when you study history. And sometimes in the Bible you say, well, why is this guy called this here and this here? Well, because that's a title. 
Ahasuerus was actually a title. Antiochus was a title. Darius is a title, holder of the scepter. Well, I believe that the birth name of Darius the Mede, holder of the scepter, who is a Mede, (laughs) I believe his birth name was Ugbaru. How's that for a name? U-G-B-A-R-U. We did talk about him last year. He was the general who served under Cyrus and conquered the city of Babylon on the night of Belshazzar's feast. He was the one camped outside of the city and got this brilliant idea from somebody, which really came from God, to rechannel the Euphrates River that ran right through the heart of the city of Babylon, rechannel the water flow, and then walk in on the dried riverbed right into the city while everybody was drunk and and they conquered it with hardly any bloodshed. That guy in charge of all that was Ugbaru, General Ugbaru. Now, one reason I say this is because the Nabonidus Chronicle, which is the name for a um, clay cylinder, a big clay cylinder that has cuneiform writing all around it, it was discovered in 1854. It is in exact agreement with what Daniel tells us Darius did as soon as he became king of Babylon. What did he do? The first thing. He assigned three presidents and 120 princes. Well, that's exactly what this General Ugbaru did on this clay cylinder. He um, installed all these sub-governors to rule Babylon once he conquered the city. He, too, was a man in his 60s. Interesting. And according to the chronology of this Nabonidus Chronicle and other ancient tablets that were discovered, Ugbaru died about a year after he conquered the city of Babylon. His reign was only about 14 months long. That coincides with why Daniel only mentions the first year of his reign as king. And you know what else that tells us, ladies? He died very shortly after he threw Daniel into the lion's den. You think there's a lesson in that one? <laughs> I'm sure there is. All right, so um, now get read your notes um, because I'm running short on time. But some do say that Cyrus was really another name for Darius or Darius was another name for Cyrus. I have... Problems with that for a number of reasons, but you might pick up commentaries that say that, and it might confuse you. But how about this one? Just for one argument, I have a little problem with harmonizing their um, ancestry, okay? Because it says Cyrus the Persian and Darius the Mede, and then it tells us that Darius's father was a Hasuerus, and it also tells us in Scripture, and we know this from history, that Cyrus's father was Cambyses. So how, how do you harmonize that? And then there's other reasons in your notes that I give you. And one of them you can just read. It's the last verse of this chapter. That tells you right there. Two different men. All right, the promotion of Daniel. Let's look at verses 1 to 3. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom and 120 princes, which should be over the whole kingdom. And over these three presidents, of whom Daniel was first that the princes might give accounts unto them, and the king should have no damage, no loss. Then this Daniel was preferred above the presidents and princes because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king thought 
to set him over the whole realm. Okay, so Daniel, we read, was Darius's first choice. He's going to pick three presidents, or like three governors, or whatever you want to call them, um, to administratively supervise over 120 princes. And the very first president he picked was Daniel. Um, And then it didn't take very long before he came to prefer Daniel. You know, among those three presidents, he preferred Daniel. And he was thinking about, he was meditating, he was seriously considering making him the preeminent of the three presidents, which would basically be like being prime minister of the whole Babylonian province. Okay? Um, He may have been old. I told you he was somewhere around 85 to 90 years of age. But obviously... He was still mentally keen, wasn't he, for Darius to have entrusted and to be thinking about entrusting him with such a powerful position. You know, this is by a man who didn't know him very long. This is still the very first few months of the man's reign, and he already, you know, prefers Daniel. Now, the courts of ancient monarchs were notorious for being full of bribery and corruption. And all I can say is, Nothing new under the sun, right? (laughs) Those who were entrusted with any degree of position and power were tempted to line their own pockets in whatever ways they could manage. And there was only one man who was standing in their way of doing this, you know, siphoning funds in order to pad their own expense accounts and thereby causing damage or loss to the king. And what was that one man's name who stood in their way from getting wealthy? Daniel, right, Daniel. And he quickly, therefore, became very unpopular with the other officials. Why? Well, because the man had scruples. He had scruples. He also had eyes like an eagle, apparently. Um, And he made them give account for every penny that they collected in taxes, which was one of their functions. He kept them from cheating the king and from cheating the taxpayers. That would be refreshing. (laughs) He made sure that they were not slack in their work because being slack in your work ethic is also cheating your boss or cheating the king. He had integrity in a culture that greatly lacked any appreciation for integrity. Another thing that really irked these officials, and you pick this up in verse 13, He wasn't one of them. He was a child of the captivity of Judah. He was a slave, actually, and he was Jewish. So, and yet, the king is preferring him over us. It's kind of like Joseph's brothers, you know? They envied him, didn't they? They didn't like him. He was too good. But Darius had discernment. And he saw Daniel as distinguished in excellence above all the others, which is what the word in Aramaic for preferred means. Now, remember, chapter 2 through chapter 7 are in Aramaic. And by the way, I shouldn't say this because it'll take up time, but I want to, that the Dead Sea Scrolls prove that the Aramaic of these chapters was a Babylonian dialect Aramaic and not an Judah dialect Aramaic which disproves the theory that the one who really wrote this book was a forgery Daniel who lived 400 years later and lived in Judah. 
If that was true, he would not have a Babylonian dialect accent in his Aramaic writing. You get me? You following me? If not, it's in the notes and you can follow up on it. Um, But the Aramaic word for preferred indicates brightness. He noticed the brightness of Daniel's spirit. He shined mightily in, in the darkness around him. And even though Daniel's elevation to such a position was very unusual, I mean, a man who's 85 to 90 and you're going to make him prime minister? That's unusual, isn't it? And yet, what had Nebuchadnezzar done on the opposite end of Daniel's life? Remember, Daniel was just a teenager, and he promoted him. Hmm. So I give credit to Nebuchadnezzar and Darius for seeing discernment and not worrying about a person's age, but looking at their character, right? That's what they did. He had character. He had integrity. He had honesty, trustworthiness, loyalty, all the things you want in a prime minister. (laughs) Now, although the new king was, uh, I mean, he was, at, at 62 years of age and a general in Cyrus's army, the one that conquered Babylon, you know, he was experienced. He was an older man. He wasn't young like Belshazzar. He had He had learned how to recognize character in people, and he was an experienced leader. Um, And so he readily saw integrity in Daniel. He likely also had heard accounts of Daniel's service to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't you know he asked about this man who had so boldly, on the night of his conquest of Babylon, he would have heard that this old guy was the one who actually stood up to Belshazzar and all his lords and ladies and said, you're doomed. <laughs> so, you know, he, he heard these stories. You know he did. And so he, he was thinking about making him his third man. It would be third man in control, Cyrus, Darius, and then it would have been Daniel. Now, as has been said by others, integrity Integrity is the first step in true greatness. Are you a woman of integrity? Integrity, I can't have to say it right. Do people think of you as being a person of integrity? That's, that's really, really important. It's a word that comes from integer, I-N-T-E-G-E-R, which means the whole of something, not a fraction. You know, like an, uh, an integer is a whole number, isn't it? Not a fraction. So it refers, f- refers to a person who is whole, not divided. He's the same in private in his home as he is in public. Integrity also has at its root the word integrated. A person of integrity has integrated the principles that govern his life into every little aspect of his life. He doesn't just have integrity in business. He's got integrity in his social life and in his family life. You know, every aspect of his life is integrated. He's not like a weather vane (laughs) that shifts Direction with every social wind. Steady. Integrity equals, I got this on the board in case, I don't know if you can see it or not, but W, here's a new bracelet you can wear around your wrist, okay? (laughs) W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. Now that's not easy, is it? (laughs) W-Y-S-I-W-Y-G. 
Integrity equals that. You know what that means? What you see is what you get. (laughs) Now, a person with biblical integrity has a heart that's just solely fixed on God. Remember Jesus said, no man can serve how many masters? Two. Nobody can serve two masters. So biblical integrity, your heart is, you know, heart, soul, mind, strength, fixed on God. Part of Daniel's noticeable distinction was his consistently good attitude, which is also very important. Attitude definitely affects one's altitude, how high you'll rise in this world. Attitude is so important. The reason for his steadfastly good attitude toward life, even when things were going really, really, really bad, and you got to admit going to be lion's food is not good, is it? So even when things are going really bad, um, he had a good attitude because he was spirit-directed. He relied on the spirit of the living God to guide him, and he was continually renewing his mind. Where did we renew our mind? In the word of God, in the scriptures. Although he was old, he was still greatly used of God. He had not allowed himself to become a crusty It's one of my daughter's favorite words. One of my daughters. Crusty, bitter old man or woman. He wasn't a woman, but he didn't allow that. Nor did he choose to retire in his service for God. Guess what? I got news for you. There is no retirement in the service of the Lord. For all I know, maybe I have 30 more years of doing this. (laughs) But there is no retirement. I mean, even in eternity. What are we going to be doing? Serving our Lord forever and ever. And it's the greatest thing to do with your life. Another thing to notice about Daniel is he had physical and spiritual stamina. Physical and spiritual stamina to carry out the will of God in his elderly years. I guess a diet of vegetables and water (laughs) really did the trick for him. Worked well. He truly wanted to make an impact for the kingdom of God to the very end of his life. But notice this. Now, this is really important. Daniel did not just wake up at 85 years of age and suddenly find that he was useful to God. Did he? Mm -mm. He was useful to God in his 80s because of the fact that he had walked with God in his teens. And in his 20s, his youth, and in his middle-aged years, he had not compromised himself physically. A lot of people might want to serve the Lord in their 80s, but they don't make it that far because they didn't take care of themselves, right, physically. But he he had not compromised himself physically or spiritually in his teens, or in his 20s, his 30s, or his 40s, 50s. So he had the capability to still serve God in his 60s, 70s, 80s, and even into his 90s. Isn't that wonderful? Great. Maybe you didn't come to faith in Christ until your senior years. Some of us, you know, didn't. Nonetheless, what does the Bible say? Joel says, it is possible to redeem those years that the locusts have eaten crusty, (laughs) bitter, excuse-making, elderly Christians are going to have some very serious regrets at the judgment seat of Christ one day. So get busy. I don't care what your age is. 
It's all relative anyway, isn't it? But get busy doing something constructive for eternity. The thing this world needs the most is prayer. So just if you can't even move around very well, you can pray, can't you? Get busy doing something for eternity because today is the first day of the rest of your life, isn't it? We need to redeem our time wisely. Okay. Oh, this is awful. Terry, I'm going to shoot her for taking so long. (laughs) She already got shot, didn't she? Let's look at verses 4 to 9, the persecution of Daniel. Then the presidents and and princes sought to find occasion against Daniel concerning the kingdom, but they could find none occasion nor fault for as much as he was faithful, neither was there any error or fault found in him. Wouldn't that be wonderful if they could say that about us? Then they said these men, we shall not find any occasion against this Daniel, except we find it against him concerning the law of his God. That's a compliment. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. Here we go again. Remember all that live forever stuff? Live forever. And here's what they say, and this is a lie. This is an outright lie. First thing they say to the king, all the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of the O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. They're really stuck on the fact that you can't change a law once it's written, king. That is mentioned six times in this chapter. Wherefore, look at verse 9, wherefore King Darius signed the writing and the decree. We'll stop right there. Both jealousy and greed motivated the other two presidents and the 120 princes to conspire against Daniel by seeking to find a charge against him. His goodness was just rubbing against them big time. His goodness was shedding too much light on their own, what? Darkness. And they didn't like it. All they wanted to do was put out his light, just like they did with our Lord. You see, Daniel was so Christ-like even before he knew Christ. They wanted to get rid of him. So maybe they sent out private investigators, I don't know, somebody, to put Daniel's integrity under their malicious microscopes. They may have gathered all the records from his long history as an administrator, you know, under Nebuchadnezzar and then other kings, etc., and even now under Darius, and they carefully comb through all those records of his professional life to find something, you know, some flaw, some defect, some corruption in him that they could then go running to the king and expose him to the king, and he would not only lose his current position as president, but then the king would never make him prime minister. But as much as they scrutinized his life... For any little fault, they found not even the suspicion of a problem. His job performance was impeccable. Now, how is that for a testimony? Huh? Can you imagine doing that today with those, you know, vetting somebody to run as candidate for whatever, president, and, you know, someone with a long public record like Daniel had about 75 years in public service? And finding not a smidgen of the problem? Can you imagine that? That would be refreshing, wouldn't it? <laughs> but then his, his life performance, his personal life, just like his work performance, was also 
impeccable. There was no report of negligence or corruption, nothing of an unethical or an immoral scandal. He was squeaky clean, totally. He was the same person, that's why he had integrity, he was the same person at home as he was at the office and as he was at the synagogue, and that's where a synagogue started was when they were captive in Babylon. Uh, His life revealed the reality of his faith. Does your life reveal the reality of your faith? There were no skeletons in his closet. I just can't imagine that today. That'd be, that'd be wonderful. <clears throat> but it's amusing. I get amused easily. But it's amusing to realize that since the conspirators could find no weaknesses in Daniel, his character, they had to go after a weakness in Darius's character. Nothing they could find in Daniel, so they have to go after something in Darius. And although this new king was relatively a mellow monarch, (laughs) a basically good king, uh, a brilliant man, a disciplined general, an effective leader, yet, like so many unsaved people who are put into positions of power, he had a bit of an ego problem. He did. He had a bit of an ego problem. So in finding no flaws in Daniel, his enemies conspired to use one of great, some of Satan's greatest tricks to lay their trap. They used falsehood and they used flattery. Be aware of flattery, false flattery. Their entire plot centered on supposedly Daniel's one weakness, which was that he was absolutely committed to his God and to the law of his God. And that, in their eyes, that made him vulnerable. So they would strike him. They couldn't get him in his professional life. They couldn't get him in his personal life. So they're going to attack him in his religious life. The only way they could think to get rid of Daniel was to devise a plot that forced him to choose between obeying his God or obeying King Darius. And they were absolutely confident that Daniel would choose which one? Obedience to his God. And, you know, often the believer can do both. You know, we can render unto Caesar the things that are due Caesar and unto God the things that are due God. But there was, in this case, there was a conflict for a man who was as committed as Daniel. Obviously, he wasn't ashamed of his faith, was he? Because his enemies recognized his commitment to his God. They understood it was so real that even death would not deter him from obeying and serving his God. Now, complete obedience to the Medo-Persian law that these guys devised, plotted, you know, and then got the king flattered him and got him to sign. Obedience to that would mean that Daniel would either have to petition Darius as a kind of mediator God, you know, mediator between him and his God or whatever, or or he could not pray to God at all, the true God, for a total of 30 days. If he needed something, he'd either have to go to Darius or he just couldn't pray. I mean, that would be complete obedience to this law. 
But Daniel really didn't have a choice in, in this. There was, for him, this was no big deal. There was no decision for him to make in this matter because he had passed this basic choice test long ago. Long ago. When, at chapter 1, when he was a captive teenager, a boy about 14 or 15 years of age, he had purposed in his heart not to defile himself with Nebuchadnezzar's non-kosher, sacrifice to idols, food, and wine. He chose right, didn't he, back then? He said, I, I won't do it. He did it in a nice way, but he said, I won't do it. Give me a diet of vegetables and water. He chose right back as a teenager. God blessed him for it, and he had set the course for his entire life. The conspirators were doing the deeds of their father, the devil, who Jesus said was a what from the beginning? A murderer and a liar. They wanted to murder Daniel, didn't they? They wanted to feed him to the lions. They wanted to murder him, and they used lies to get there. Satan was the father of murder and lies. These men assembled before the king lied in order to deceive the king when they assured him that all the presidents of the kingdom had consulted together uh, to establish this royal statute. And then they included um, that there were other people involved in the kingdom that agreed with this as well. They mentioned governors, prince, um, counselors, and captains in verse 7. These would be men spread across all of Babylonia. Now, I think that was probably a lie, too, when they put all of them. And so we all agree on this, because I don't think they went to every one of those guys in the whole kingdom and got them to agree to this unanimously. Do you? I mean, maybe they did. Um, but I doubt it. That was probably an exaggeration. We know they used that, so it would sound unanimous. But we do know for sure that they were lying when they included the word all presidents because there was one president who was not in on this, right? And his name was Daniel. And we know he wasn't part of their consultations because he would never have consented to this proposed decree. So they were deceiving the king with a lie. Now, likely the original conspirators of this plot, the princes, the other two uh, presidents and the princes, I think they probably kept their motive a secret from all those captains and counselors and the other guys that are mentioned in verse 7. Nonetheless, as I said, they, they used them in order to flatter the king because this would stroke his ego to think that he was so respected by all those under him that they had unanimously agreed on a mandate that would strengthen his kingly powers. Beware of flattery. So as to why he accepted the the proposal besides the flattery to his ego, there is the matter of his new kingship. He's a brand new king, okay? Most people had never heard of Ugbaru. (laughs) This would give him greater name recognition. Everybody knew Cyrus, the Persian, but who was Ugbaru, Darius the Mede? Um, So this was good, you know, to have name recognition, but also it would be important um, in his new rule over conquered people. This would compel every subject of the Babylonian province to recognize the authority of their new Medo-Persian ruler. Um, It would help to... In his mind, this is a good idea. This will help to unify the people. And I'll give you other reasons for why he went ahead and signed this decree, but it was a hasty decision, wasn't it? Beware of flattery and beware of making a hasty decision. 
without thinking it through and how it's going to affect other people. You know, seek wise counsel, commit your ways to the Lord, pray about it. He made too fast of a decision here. Sound like a good idea. Besides, it's only for 30 days, big deal, signed his name on it. But once you sign a Medo-Persian law, guess what? It could never, ever be revoked. And again, I'm out of time, so I won't get into all the reasons for that, but that's just the way it was. Even the king himself could not rescind what he had written. You see this again in the book of Esther. It was actually a foolish decree, if you think about it, if you really think about it, in terms of everything. If you took this literally to mean all petitions of any nature, that would cripple the entire kingdom on all levels. If nobody could ask for anything uh, from anybody except King Darius, that would mean that a child couldn't even ask his mother for a piece of bread, right? If you take it literally. So obviously they understand that the... um, that the petition only had to do with religious matters. You know, no one could pray in a religious way to anyone other than to King Darius to petition him for anything. And the, the period, for, so for the period of 30 days, the king was to be the only representative of deity. Whatever God you served, he was the only representative of your God. You had to go through him. He was your mediator. Well, when the presidents and princes left the palace of Darius, they must have felt very pleased with themselves. Confident that Daniel would be faithful to his God, they figured that he was just about as good as dead. They were proud of how they had manipulated things with this irreversible law policy, but soon they were going to discover, just like Belshazzar did, what it means when you challenge the one true lawgiver. So quickly, let's look at the prayer life of Daniel, verses 10 to 13. Now, when Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went straight to the king and argued his case. Is that what it says? When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he got really, really angry at the other presidents and princes. Is that what it says? It says, when he knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and his window being open in his chamber toward Jerusalem, he kneeled upon his knees. I don't know what else you kneel on, but he kneeled upon his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he did aforetime. Then these men, his enemies, assembled and found Daniel praying, just like they knew they would, and making supplication before his God. And then they came near and spake before the king. With happy haste, they ran straight to the king. As soon as they saw Daniel in front of his window, they go to the king, and they say to the king, Hast thou not signed a decree that every man that shall ask a petition of any god or man within 30 days, save of thee, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? Didn't you sign that decree? Of course, they knew he did. The king answered and said, The thing is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Then answered they and said before the king, that Daniel, you see the disdain there? That Daniel, which is of the children of the captivity of Judah, regardeth not thee, O king, nor the decree that thou hast signed, but maketh his petition three times a day. Ah, it was Daniel's custom. The whole time he'd been in Babylon, what was his custom? Three times a day to pray. Isn't that something? Morning, 
noon. And you know why he did that? Um, because God said through Solomon's prayer of dedication to the temple that if you people, oh, the reason he faced Jerusalem, the reason he did it three times a day is because he was a prayer warrior. <laughs> I counted, that's over 1,080-something prayers a year. Just imagine, if everybody in this room, if we prayed three times a day, and that's 1,000 for each of us, how many prayers we would lift up to the Lord in one year? And we need to. But anyway, he prayed facing Jerusalem because God said through Solomon that if my people, if you guys are carried off into a captive land, guess why? It'll be because of your sin against me. If that happens, you are to pray toward the Holy of Holies wherever you are in the world. Pray toward the Holy of Holies and I will hear your prayer and I will forgive your sin. Sounds like Second Chronicles, what is it, 714. If my people, <laughs> which... No, me, pray, you know, I'll forgive and hear. So Daniel, saturated with the scriptures, that's what he did. He had his window open, and three times a day he would pray toward Jerusalem. Not out of habit. I mean, it was a great habit, but he did it because his heart was fixed. It was showing God, I believe we're going to return to that land one day. So new law or not, he went to his prayer chamber like he always did. He got down on his knees because that's a position. We don't have to be in any particular position to pray, do we? But that shows surrender, submission to God. He got down on his knees, he, his, you know, 85-year-old knees, and he prayed before his open window. Um, it's, and this is important. I know I'm over time, but it's in, this is important to hear for us today in our world, in our nation. It is worth noting how very little it mattered to Daniel and his relationship to God whether it was the Babylonians who were controlling his world or if it was the Medo-Persians controlling his world or whether his earthly king or president (laughs) was Nebuchadnezzar or evil Merodach or Neraglasser or Labashi Marduk or Nabonidus, Belshazzar or even Darius. And he had served under all those different kings. It didn't matter who his earthly king was. These temporal matters did not affect his faith. They didn't affect his integrity, and they did not affect his prayer life. We need to remember that, don't we? It didn't matter to him how the political winds blew because he knew ultimately who was in charge. As he acknowledged in his prayer back in chapter 2, Daniel understood that it is God who sets up kings and presidents and governments and empires, right? And God who takes them down. He's the one in control of history. If today, now think about this. This is hard. If today we were to face a similar situation, and it could be coming, let's say that there was a law passed that no one could pray in public or even um, with your children. So, you, you couldn't pray in public, all right? And so you go to a restaurant, and you, people are watching. If you bow your head with your family to have a prayer, you, will, you would be thrown in prison. Or how about this one, thrown to the lion's den? What would you do? This could happen. It could happen. What would I do? It's hard to know until it happens, but Daniel's boldness and his powerful faith had its source, and he understood this. All of this, 
had its source in his steadfast prayer life. It was the whole key to his vibrant testimony for Jehovah God. So he didn't just merely fall on his knees when a crisis struck. He was not being a foolish show-off, you know, and going up to his chamber and opening the windows to show off foolishly in spite of the decree. Nor did he try to rationalize with himself a compromise with that decree. You know, we're never too old or spiritually mature not to be tempted to compromise, are we? And I got to thinking about this one, and I think, oh my, how easy it would be to compromise on this particular one. He could have just stopped praying totally for 30 days. He could have just, he could have said, you know what, I have prayed over a thousand times every year of my long life. I think I can take a break. For 30 days, just one month, I just won't pray. Or he could have, this would be easy, wouldn't it? What could he have done? Closed his windows. <laughs> now that's where my temptation would be. Of course, I live in the woods behind the tobacco field, so I probably could have my windows open, nobody would be watching. But he could have closed his windows and prayed on his knees at his bedside, and nobody would have been the wiser for it. Um, But Daniel would not compromise by ceasing to pray or even by hiding his prayers. You know why? Because God would know that he was doing so for the sake of his own protection. He was trying to protect, he'd be trying to protect himself instead of depending on God to protect him. To hide his prayers from his watching enemies would displease his Lord. And you see, Daniel, how about this for faith? No wonder he's in the Hebrews 11 faith chapter. Daniel would rather be lion food than displease his Lord. Wow. The real temptation for him was not to pray to some quasi-god named Darius. That, that wasn't even a temptation at all. I mean, that's just total idolatry. That wouldn't be a temptation for you and me, right? If they made a decree that we could only pray to the president, are you going to make a trip to Washington, D.C. so you can pray to the president? I mean, that isn't going to tempt you, is it? It wouldn't tempt any of us. The real temptation for Daniel was to put his own life above his love for the Lord. That's a temptation. You know, I love my life, Lord. I'm going to put my own life above my love for you. He knew, however, that if he prayed somewhere else, if he altered his normal practice, his enemies would know that he loved his own life more than he loved his God. And his testimony would be soiled before his enemies and before those who served beneath him in the kingdom. He's kind of the boss, you know. All his employees would see him and know and hear about it, and that his, his testimony would be, that long life of testimony would be spoiled. And all the, um, all the idol-worshiping citizens of Babylon, um, they, they would see that he, he compromised, and even his own people. Now, this would be the most important, his own people. The Jews were still captives in Babylon, Now they're captives of the Medo-Persians. They needed Daniel's example, didn't they? 
It was actually his protection in the lion's den and the subsequent destruction of all the conspirators. You know what happens to those other two presidents and the 120 princes? What happens to them and their families? They get fed to the lions. So when all the conspirators against Daniel, he's not eaten, but they are. When that happens, that right then and there puts an end to anyone else daring to enforce that decree for the rest of the month. I mean, who's going to tattletale on any Jew praying (laughs) after that? So likely he was very instrumental in saving the lives of all the Jewish people. Think of that. Because like him, they probably would have done the same thing, or many of them would. The true Israelites would have. So he spared Israel, just like Esther did. And guess what? If he had been lion food, we wouldn't even have the book of Daniel. Because he didn't write the book of Daniel until his, the end of his life, his old age. So he not only prayed openly, but he gave thanks to the Lord. Isn't that something? What do you do in a crisis? Do you give thanks? Or do you go, oh, no, and worry, and, you know, he, he went on his knees, and it says he thanked the Lord. Why did he thank the Lord? Because he knew he's sovereign, he's in control, all things work together for good, and everything give thanks. And I know that my God is able to deliver me, just like his three Hebrew friends said in the fiery furnace. He gave thanks because he said, wow, this is a great opportunity for me to glorify you, God. So I'm thankful for this opportunity. And if I die... Fine, I die. I've lived a long life anyway. Not a very fun way to die, but maybe it'd be fast. Oh, all right. Well, we're out of time. Um, Make sure you do. Oh, I do have to say this. I'm sorry. One more minute. One more minute. One more minute. (laughs) What really, really, really surprised the conspirators, you know, when they went to the king and they tattletailed on Daniel what did they think Darius would, how, what do you think his reaction, what did you think they thought his reaction would be? Remember Nebuchadnezzar when they said these guys won't bow to your statue? Remember how his face got seven times redder <laughs> and he exploded? He was so angry. Did Darius, did his face turn seven shades darker red with anger against Daniel? Was he mad at Daniel? No, what does it say? I don't know if I read it or not. It says, he was sore. This is verse 14. He was sore, displeased with himself. He was distressed at what his hasty decision, his irrevocable law had meant to his good friend Daniel. He was upset with himself and distressed that he had, been allowed, he had allowed himself through flattery. He knew these men. He knew they hated Daniel. I'm sure he saw through all that. And yet he had allowed them to manipulate him. So the shock was, you know, they set their trap to catch Daniel. But who did they really catch? They, ca- they caught the king, Darius. <laughs> so we're going to pick up the story, the rest of the story, two weeks. Remember, don't come back next week because we're meeting bi-monthly. Do you know what bi-monthly means? doesn't mean only in September and then in November. <laughs> There was a lot of confusion about what bi-monthly, but two weeks from now. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together in your word, how quickly it goes. Oh, man. But thank you so much that you are the same God that of Daniel um, long ago, 2,600 years ago. You're the same God then as you are today. You are the unchanging, sovereign God 
who met him at his greatest hour of need and gave him strength not to compromise. And we can claim that for ourselves today. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you are sovereign and help us. Help us to do likewise. May we, we have each been called to live a life like Daniel lived. We've been called to live a life like that in our own day. Whether we're young or whether we're old, we want to be used by you till our dying day as he was. So help us to be women of integrity. We ask these things, Jesus, in your blessed name. Amen. God bless you.